0: The scripture reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 36, verses 8 through 34. It's a partial account of the building of the tabernacle. Hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. All those with skill among the workers made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twisted linen, in blue, purple, and crimson yarns, with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits, and all the curtains were the same size. He joined five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he joined to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on the one curtain. And made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another. And he made 50 clasps of gold. And joined the curtains one to the other with clasps. So the tabernacle was one whole. He also made curtains of goat's hair. For a tent over the tabernacle, he made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits. And the width of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains were the same size. He joined five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. He made fifty loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of one set and fifty loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. He made fifty clasps of bronze to join the tent together so that it might be one whole. And he made for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and an outer covering of fine leather. Then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the width of each frame. Each frame had two pegs for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made in this way, 20 frames for the south side, and he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames, two bases under the first frame for its two pegs, and two bases under the next frame for its two pegs. For the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, he made 20 frames and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under the first frame, and two bases Under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They were separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them in this way for the two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, sixteen bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. He made the middle bar to pass through from end to end, halfway up the frames, and he overlaid the frames with gold and made rings of gold for them to hold the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God.
1: Well I'm tempted to apologize to John and to all of you for that scripture reading. 26 verses of painstaking architectural instruction might seem like a bit much even if you have served on building and grounds it's a lot and like i said i am tempted to apologize for foisting it upon you this morning but on the other hand if you were to read the full account of the tabernacle's creation Well, you would start at Exodus 25, verse 1, and finish at Exodus chapter 40, verse 38. So maybe it's less I'm sorry and more you're welcome for having spared you 532 additional verses. But in sharing even this small excerpt, my professor, Sam Ballantyne, is finally vindicated. Back in olden days, when I was a student at Union Seminary, we anticipated Old Testament the way you anticipate a root canal, something to endure and hopefully get behind you as quickly as possible, and if you're lucky, you won't remember too much about it once it's over. (laughs) We spent a week learning about the tabernacle's construction. Now, I should have realized that meant something significant, But when it came time to study for the final exam, there's a lot in the Old Testament, and I couldn't for the life of me imagine that details of cubits and curtains and clasps would make the cut. The first question on the first page of our in-class closed book exam, draw the tabernacle as God instructed Moses to build it, Your drawing should be to scale and include furnishings. Y'all, I didn't even try. I drew a box, and inside the box I wrote, the human brain can only retain so much. Should I ever need to know this, I know where to look it up. I did not get an A on that exam. And 14 years later, here we are reflecting on the very details I brashly declared I would never need to know. This may be an excellent time to remind you that if I am already boring you to tears, there is an artist proclaiming good news with his paintbrush right there. We are talking about the intersection of faith and art today. Like I mentioned before, we've talked about faith in science, faith in history, and we'll get to faith in math. But Jesus instructs us to love God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind, with all of our mind. And just as that means a critical examination of subjects that revolve around facts and figures, it means more than that, too. The human brain is made up of two hemispheres, the left brain and the right brain. And you may be familiar with the idea that we all have one side of our brain that is more dominant. Supposedly, left-brained people are more logical, more at home in the hard sciences, while right-brained people are more creative, more at home in the arts. I've heard this repeated so many times in so many different spaces. I thought it was true. Just recently, I learned it's not. It is true that each hemisphere of the brain controls different functions. The left side handles analytical and verbal tasks, while the right side takes care of spatial perception and contributes emotional context but linking these functions with individual personality traits or individual academic prowess is just a myth. In 2013, the University of Utah conducted a study on this. They analyzed over 1,000 people, and they found no evidence of anyone having one side of the brain that was more dominant than the other. Each side of the brain does work harder at different times, but that's based on the task at hand, and it doesn't vary person by person. Every single participant, from engineers to musicians, relied equally on both sides of their brains. All of which is to say there is a lesson here for all of us today, even for those who, like me, cannot carry a tune in a bucket, or those who are chosen last for Pictionary, or even those who claim there's absolutely no need to fuss over the details of the tabernacle. Because it was a work of art, you know? It's easy to lose sight of that over the many, many, many verses But the tabernacle, it isn't made up of sticks and mud and whatever was just easily at hand. The curtains are made of fine twisted linen and yarns dyed rich colors of blue and purple and crimson. And they are enormous. The frame of the tabernacle is built of acacia wood that is durable and strong, It's wood that resists decay, and each frame fits carefully into the other, joined together with forged silver, and curtains are hung over these frames, on bars overlaid with gold. It's extravagant, so extravagant that it's fair to pause and wonder, well, is this good, or is it just too much? So while we're paused, let's remember what happens before the tabernacle comes into being. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for generations. Moses leads them out of Egypt, but once they are free, they find themselves wandering in the wilderness. And the wilderness is a very hard place to be. It's less a place on the map and more a condition of the spirit. It's where you feel alone and adrift and unsure. The Israelites were lost in that for 40 years. And even though it had to be better than slavery, they whined about it constantly. God, they said, this is the literal worst. God, they complained, we would be better off dead. And that's what wilderness can do to us. It can tunnel our vision down into one tiny, fragmented moment, which can make it seem like the good news might be good for nothing at all, at least not in days that are overwhelmed with toil and trouble. We, too, we're not strangers to wilderness. So it's important to remember what God does next. God says to Moses, and I am paraphrasing a bit here, God says, I know, I know these are not easy times, but I promise it's going to be okay. It's hard to remember that though, so do this. Build me a dwelling place, a physical space where you can go, a place where I will go where you go and I will rest where you rest. Build me a tabernacle to help you remember in concrete and tangible ways that I will be with you always, everywhere. And then God says, And when you build that tabernacle, make it beautiful. Make it of gold and silver and bronze. Make it of blue and purple and crimson. Make it of linen and leather, oil and onyx. Take gold and weave it in among the fibers so that the threads glimmer and catch the light. Take stones and gems and set them in bronze so that everything that is strong is also sublime. Make it beautiful, God says. And here's the thing about this. God did not need the tabernacle to be beautiful. God doesn't need anything of us or of this earth. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is part of our tradition, it says God has all life, all glory, all goodness, all blessedness in and of himself. God is all-sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which God has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, and upon them. God did not need the tabernacle to be beautiful. God knew we would need the tabernacle to be beautiful. God knew that the Israelites would need beauty to accompany them everywhere they went. And God knows that we still need beauty by our side every step of the way. Because life is hard and beauty is fuel. Beauty is essential. And that is a theological claim David Benjamin Blower, he writes, Christian hope is anticipatory. We are not forever looking backwards at a merely mechanistic atonement in the past, nor are we looking sideways for momentary escape from the present. Christian hope ultimately looks forward to the renewal of creation, to the healing of nations, to a time when God's goodness resides fully among us. And so every glimpse of beauty is a glimmer of that end, a present manifestation of a future that will ultimately swallow up and transform our suffering and broken present. And every faithful artist works to cultivate this sort of imagination. Every glimpse of beauty is a hint of God's promised day. And every hint of that day brings us closer to it and sustains us to keep going. That's why beauty is not just nice or pleasant or aesthetic. It's essential. In her book, Beauty and Being Just, Elaine Scarry draws a direct connection between experiencing beauty and pursuing justice. She writes, beauty prompts a copy of itself. And here's what she means by that. She says, when you see something beautiful, it stops you in your tracks. It makes you want to replicate it somehow, to draw it or write a song about it or tell someone about it. Once, she says, I saw a cottage that was so beautiful it would not let me walk past without stopping to admire it first. The front door was all but hidden by low boughs and flowering vines. The sidewalk was lined with folk art, and I had to take a picture of it, even though I don't have a Facebook page or an Instagram account to post it on. I just had to make a copy of it, she says, because it was too beautiful for there to be just one of it in the world. Seeing beauty awakens something in us that makes us long for more of it. And that includes but is not limited to paintings and poems and sculptures and symphonies. It includes gardens and cakes and designs in newly mowed grass and babies and also, again, friendship and laughter and welcome. Justice realized, Scary suggests, is itself a form of beauty and seeing it compels persons of faith to replicate it. The poets have long claimed that love begats love. So maybe too, beauty begats beauty and justice begats justice. Now there are some who worry. They worry that beauty and justice have to be in opposition to one another because attention spent focused on beauty means there is less attention paid to justice And funds spent in artistic ways are funds taken away from places of deeper and more practical need. Now, most things in life are nowhere near as much of a zero-sum game as we make them out to be. But even still, these observations and questions come from a place of deep concern, and so they are worthy of our consideration here is what I can offer. Becoming familiar and fluent with beauty changes the way we see the world. Because when we are more attuned to the beauty around us, we also become more attuned to the things that are not beautiful. And that means things that have been injured or disfigured or cheapened or belittled. We cannot mend what is broken, until we see that it is broken. And we cannot know that a note is off-key until we know what the right pitch is supposed to sound like. We cannot always tell what is missing until we experience completeness. I heard a theoretical physicist give a lecture recently I understood one out of every six sentences. That's why I couldn't include it a couple of weeks ago. She said that physicists study the fundamental laws of nature. She spends her days looking for the most basic ingredients that make up everything and everyone. But then she said this. She said, there is scientific evidence. There are multiple studies that prove Humans almost always fail to notice anything we're not expecting. We almost always fail to notice things we aren't expecting, even if they are right there in front of us. I think that's why God said to Moses, Make me a tabernacle, and when you make it, make it beautiful. Not because God needed it, but because God knew we would need it. And so, among other things, they made curtains. They made curtains of blue and crimson and purple. Fine linen woven together with strands of glittering gold. Curtains that were beautifully hemmed to hang in the presence of God. And maybe, maybe that's why the Gospels later tell us of the woman in need of healing who reached out and grabbed at the hem of Jesus' garment generations and lifetimes later. It might just be that beauty is so woven into the hem of our story. Well, that'll be what might finally heal us all. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray.
0: Amen.